Hey, I'm Brandon, the online campus pastor here at Big Valley Grace, and thank you for taking a moment to watch this message. It is the teaching portion from one of our live weekend worship gatherings, and we have those every single weekend here online and in person, and I just want to extend an invitation to you to join us. We're just a local church, local body of believers, and we would love if you would join us uh, on a weekend upcoming here sometime soon. Uh, but as we get headed into this message together, a couple things just want to point you to. One is a connect card. If there's any way that, that we can pray for you, if you want to contact us, that Connect card form is just a really great way uh, to let us know that you're joining us. Any next steps you want to take, stuff like that is right on there. Also, if you want to bring an offering, a worshipful gift uh, to King Jesus, you can do that right on our Give page on our website or via text. So hope you enjoy the unpacking, the unfolding of the Word as we look at it together. Well, good morning, church family. You guys can take a seat. Grateful to be here with you guys. That kind of reminded me of last week. If you were here, power's out or outside and just kind of hear the voices. Kind of cool, kind of cool reminder from God that the church is not a building, the church is the people. We just took the church outside and did church together, so that was cool. Uh, my name is Brandon. I'm one of our pastors here. Uh, grateful to open up the word with you guys this morning. Um, Welcome everybody online as well. It is good to have you guys into our live stream this morning as well. Um, if you've been with us the past month and a half, you know that we are spending the summer here as a church family uh, going through Luke's gospel of the life and ministry of Jesus. Uh, we've got a couple of resources we've tried to put in your hands uh, and uh, encouraging you to spend time in God's word. And this is one of them. This is our bookmark. If you didn't get a copy, if yours has like been eaten by the dog or thrown away or like lost or whatever, grab one out the information center. We got tons of copies. Grab a second one. Um, this is still available. And the other really cool thing, and I wanted to give you an update here, we have a text reminder system. Remember, you can, you can text Luke uh, to our text line. And we'll send you daily reminders of the reading and maybe even like a little thought or a prompt to go with it. And so this is super cool. We have over 500 people in our church family that are signed up for that, which is more than we've ever had for a text reminder. So that's, that's awesome. Super, super cool. So um, if you have a Bible, open up to Luke chapter 7. That's where we're going to be in just a moment. And uh, if you've been with us what we're doing here on the weekends, when we come to teach on the weekends, when we come to preach, um, we're basically taking one little passage from the reading from the past week, and we're diving into it, and we're looking at it. And for, for the teachers on the weekend, uh, we've been given kind of the freedom to say, okay, so what stuck out to you? What's the passages that just hopped out to you, and what do you want to, want to share on and for me, as soon as I read the section from this past week, there was one that just hopped off the page. I knew as soon as I heard it, it was a phrase, it was a word that I, I was like, man, that's the one. And before we hop in real quick, if I were to pause right now, just stop. And if I was to point over here and I was to say, hey, everybody, that's amazing. That's incredible. I've actually been looking and I've, I've been looking everywhere and that's, I found it. It's right there. You probably ask yourself, like, what is he talking about? Why did he stop the gathering and point over there? What's he so excited about? What does he see that's got him all excited? And that's exactly what's happening here in Luke chapter 7. And Jesus says this. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled. He was amazed he thought to himself, that's incredible. This is the only time in all of the Gospels that we read that Jesus marveled. And what did he marvel at? He marveled at someone's faith. 
The only other time we read marvels when he marveled at the unbelief of those in his hometown of Nazareth. This is the only time he marvels at someone's faith. And he said, that's it. That's what I've been looking for. That's amazing. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to ask the question. We're going to dive in and we're going to say, what type of faith does Jesus marvel at? And we're going to ask ourselves, what type of faith does he want to find in me? that he might find that type of faith in me as well. And so we're gonna be in Luke chapter seven. We're gonna be in the first 10 verses. If you don't own a copy of God's word, if you don't own a Bible, just wanna invite you after we're done here for our gathering, go through those doors, go through another set of doors in the altar room. We'd love to put a Bible in your hands. That's our gift to you. We wanna make sure you have a copy of God's word so you can be spending time in it. But um, that's an invitation for you. Luke chapter seven, verse one. Here we go. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Okay, so this sets a little bit of the backstory here. For the past couple of chapters, since chapter uh, four, Jesus has kicked off his public ministry. And what he's doing is he's going around from town to town, synagogue to synagogue, uh, preaching, teaching, healing. And what he's teaching about is the kingdom of God. He's teaching about what is a disciple? What is a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? What does it look like to be a follower? And he's saying, this is the type of faith of someone in the kingdom. And what we find is that he's been teaching that all over the place. In Matthew's gospel, we read about the Sermon on the Mount. In Luke's gospel here, uh, the chapter before we read about the Sermon on the Plain, a lot of the same material, Beatitudes, story of the house on the rock, not the sand, all that stuff. Same type of message, different locations. And so what that shows us is Jesus is going around preaching over and over. Here's what faith looks like. Here's what faith looks like. And on the weekend, this is our third message. This is the third time I've preached this same message. And different group of people, same message, different location, different time. And that's what Jesus has been doing. And what he's doing now is he's headed back Home. Capernaum is really the headquarters of his ministry ever since he was rejected in Nazareth. He's moved to Capernaum. Here's a map right here. It's on the north shore of the uh, Sea of Galilee. And so uh, this is really kind of home base for, for where he's, he's taken off these, these teachings. And he's headed back home. I just kind of put myself in those shoes. I, I know how tired I am after the weekend. My voice is shot. I'm just kind of exhausted and he's coming off of actually traveling and teaching and all the questions and fielding all this stuff. And he's real, you gotta imagine he's tired. And he's coming back. And before he even gets to his house, he's encountered, he's interrupted. And here's what we find in verse two. Now a centurion, he had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. So before Jesus, Jesus even gets home, he's approached with this request that comes to him. And there's all kinds of layers we just read about of, of, of the need and who's asking and who's asking for who. But what we, what we find is that the one who, who really has the request, he's not there. He's really sick. Interesting, Luke, the medical doctor, the, the uh, author of the Gospel of Luke, he doesn't give us the diagnosis. He doesn't tell us the symptoms. He doesn't say, hey, this is wrong, and this is wrong, and this is wrong. He just says the prognosis. He's going to die. And he's probably so near death that 
he can't even show up himself. And so this centurion, his master, on behalf of this servant, sends word through these Jewish elders to Jesus. Here's what's going on. And so why do we have a Jew, uh, Jewish elders? Why do we have a Roman centurion? Why are all these different people in this area? So this region is part of Judea, Israel. The Jewish elders, this is, this is their homeland. This is, where, this is where their home is. And the reason we have a Roman centurion there is because the Roman Empire had bled into this re- region. This was a, a conquered nation. And as Rome uh, expanded their empire all throughout the Mediterranean, part of the way that they would rule and govern was to set up these Roman centurions. And they were the rulers in the area. They were the ones who were command of all the soldiers in a specific area. In fact, when they would go to battle, they would take these centurions and they would kind of pull them into the legion themselves and they, they, they'd field from them and then make the army and they'd do that. So if you catch the dynamic here, the Jewish elders are an oppressed people and the Roman centurion represents the oppressors. And what he represents Militarily, politically, is control. This Roman centurion represents control. And not only that, when you get a picture of this guy, he really represents control, like a guy who's in control of his life. He's got his stuff together. Not only is he in control of soldiers, you get a picture of the Roman army, right? All the same helmets, all the same shields, all the same stuff, organized, regimented. Even the the Roman army itself, the way a legion was laid out, all organized, all regimented, all in control, under control. The Roman army was a machine, but this guy's life was also organized. It's under control. It's a guy with authority. It's a guy who knows how to get stuff done. It's a guy who, he owns his own home. He's got a good job, a well-paying job. He's got people under him. He's got friends. He's organized. And why is this so significant? See, not only does this set the stage for this marvelous faith that we're going to see, but the context, whether you see it yet or not, it is incredibly relevant and relatable today. How's that relatable to us? Let me show you. First, this centurion is dealing with a loss of control. He represents control. His world is organized. But no matter how put together he seems, no matter uh, how in control he appears to be or even thinks he is, no matter how much he, he wants or tries to fix this and make it right, he can't. He's confronted with the very real reality that he's not in control. There's brokenness he can't heal. There's situations he can't change. And there's moments, right, that we walk through that no matter how much we want, we wish they weren't here, we wish we could avoid them, we wish we could fix them, we come to the reality that we can't. So much so, in our own lives, we, we like to put it out to the world that we're in control or that things are all good. We put on a smiley face. We, we plaster happy pictures on our social media. We like to paint an image of those things. But this guy's world has been shaken. Things have not gone to plan. Life has not gone the way he expected it. Tragedy has struck. 
trials happen and life has gotten really hard. Second thing, he's dealing with the impact of sin. See, the, the Roman centurion, he's heartbroken over this servant of his, cares deeply about him. And what's going on with the servant is that he is suffering from sickness that leads to death. And in our Bibles, if we go all the way back to Genesis, we find that the way that God set things up and the way that God created was without sickness and suffering and death. But when sin entered the world, what also came with it? Sickness and suffering and death. And the impact we've seen ever since that moment until today has been causing chaos in our world till today. And so what he's dealing with is something really relatable and very real. Sin is impacting his life. Sin is impacting someone he cares about. Sin is impacting his household. And for us, sin is doing the exact same thing today. Maybe you're dealing with the impact of sin in your life or someone you care about is going through that. Or this is causing disruption in your family. It's hurting friendships. It's depressing young people. It's destroying marriages. The impact of sin, we see it everywhere. And this is what he's dealing with. So he's dealing with the loss of control and he's dealing with the impact of sin. Pretty relatable stuff. So what's he do? Here's the first thing we see. When he heard about Jesus... He sent to Jesus. And this is number one. It's a faith that's beyond just belief. See, he doesn't just believe in Jesus. He does something with that belief. When the circumstances are out of control, when the impact of sin is causing chaos and disruption in his life and his household, the first thing he does, the first thing we see him do, hears that Jesus is around he says, I gotta bring this to Jesus. I gotta act. I can't just believe who, this about him. I gotta bring this to him. And we don't know exactly what he knew about Jesus. We don't know all of what he knew. We don't know what he heard about him. We don't know if he had snuck in the crowd and the sermon on the plane and listened in. We don't know if he, just as a, a man of information, just got word back of Jesus, this guy who had a different type of authority, a different type of, type of teaching, who could heal. He, we don't know. But what we do know is what he knew. Jesus can heal. Jesus can do something. And so he brings it to Jesus. He does something. It led to what he did. My favorite story uh, in all of all time uh, that has to do with faith and that really pictures this, con uh, this concept well. Uh, Rick shared this eight years ago from this platform, and I'll try to do my best to, to share it. In the 19th century, there was a na man named Charles Blondine, okay? And in 1859, on June 30th, he was the first man to ever tightrope across Niagara Falls couple hundred feet up in the air, 1,100 feet across. Imagine that, how long it took. First man to ever do it. He was successful. And then he went on to do it 17 more times. And each time he would do it, word would get out, the crowd would grow, and as the true entertainer and performer he was, he'd up the ante make it a little bit more daring each time. 
One time he rode across on a bicycle. One time he walked across on a pair of stilts. One time he was blindfolded. One time he brought a little stove out here and cooked himself an omelet. (laughs) But one time, Mr. Charles Blondine shows up in his carriage or whatever it was, and he rolls out a wheelbarrow. And the crowd's there. The line across is already drawn. Everybody's excited. Everybody's getting ready. And he rolls out the wheelbarrow. He looks at the crowd and he says, how many of you guys think I can roll this wheelbarrow across? Yeah, absolutely. How many of you think that I can can push someone across in the wheelbarrow? Yeah, of course you can, Mr. Blondine. All right, get in the wheelbarrow. (laughs) What just happened? Something changed, didn't it? We just crossed a threshold. It was all fun and games when, hey, I know it. I believe it. Easy to say in a crowd, yeah, of course he can do it. Easy to know with our minds. Easy to say with our mouths, especially in a crowd. Harder to get in the wheelbarrow. And that's a picture of faith in action. What does it mean to not just know something, but do something about it, to act on it? Our brother James wrote this. He said, don't just be hearers of the word. Because if you know if you do that, you're just deceiving yourself. He said, be doers of the word. Let your faith be a faith of action. He goes on. He says, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, it's dead. It's useless. In other words, what good is it? And in this place where the centurion, he has lost control, he's not in control, he's impacted by sin, he's dealing with that, he brings it to Jesus. He acts. And maybe the only thing for for you this morning, maybe the one takeaway even so far that you have, maybe this is the one thing that you need to hang on to, is will you? Maybe this is your holdup. Will you? And God's saying, get in the wheelbarrow. And maybe you're looking at your family, your life. Maybe you've got hurts that you say, this is going on. Maybe you just need to bring it to his feet. Maybe there's that piece of surrender that that you haven't surrendered over to his control and he's just saying, I need you to set it in the wheelbarrow. I know you know that you need to set it in the wheelbarrow. It's time to set it in the wheelbarrow. Maybe it's a place you just need to seek his plan. Maybe it's a place you need to follow his way. Maybe it's a place where you know what it says, but man, you just really need to live out the word in this area. Would you be a a person of a faith of action? That's the first thing we see. Look at verse four. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him. Okay, remember those Jewish elders, they plead with him, uh, with Jesus earnestly, saying, he's worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation. And he's the one who built our synagogue. Okay, so, so these Jewish elders do what they're told and bring their request, but notice how they couch it. They start talking up this guy. Start talking about how good this centurion is. They start giving the, the, the rap sheet, the resume. They start praising this guy. He's, he's a good guy, Jesus. Notice the word they use. He's worthy. He deserves it. He's earned it. Jesus, you should do this for him. So, by the way, 
this servant, just, just the way that the centurion treated his servant, said he highly valued him. That's highly odd in that culture. See, back during that time in the first century, slaves, bond servants, servants, they weren't seen as people. They were seen as property. They were seen as tools. They weren't a someone, they were a something. And that's not the way the centurion looks at his servant. He doesn't use people. He values people. This guy's different. He's a good dude. Not only is he a good master, he's, he's kind to the oppressed people. He's in charge. He doesn't have to be. He could be a jerk. But he's good to them. He's good to those he's ruling over. It's also incredibly generous. Look at He built the synagogue. And they're looking at Jesus saying, hey, Jesus, you're a Jew. He's been good to our people. He built the very synagogue you taught in. Look at all the stuff he's done. And see what's happening here is that these Jewish elders, these religious people, are doing what they know how to do. These religious people are thinking religiously. They think in order to get God approval in order for God to move, for God to do something, I've got to do this. They're thinking like a religion, not like a relationship with God. And what they're doing is they're keeping score. They're saying, this centurion, Jesus, I just got to let you know, he built a synagogue, he's been good to us, you owe him. He deserves this. And one of the great dangers that we have to our faith is having this religious mindset that our relationship with God or even our involvement in the church is seen as transactional. And we start doing stuff either out of guilt or out of expectation. Like this. We start looking at God and we start saying, God, I messed up. Or God, I kind of feel bad about this. All right, fine, God. I'll give. I'll give. I'll serve. I owe you one. We start acting out of guilt. Or we start acting out of expectation. God, I did all the things you said. I signed up for the class. We took the marriage class. I took the membership class. I took every class we had. I started giving. I even read my Bible three days a week. Your turn. I prayed about it. I seeked, I asked, I knocked. Where's that spouse I've been looking for? Why aren't you fixing my marriage? Why aren't you bringing my kid back? Why can't we get pregnant? And we start looking with expectation. But watch what happens in verse six. And Jesus went with him. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. What just happened? That's very different than what we just heard. First the centurion says, come to my house and heal my servant. And now he almost does like a 180, and he's like, don't even come. Why? Well, let me give you an illustration here. What's happening here is what I believe sometimes this happens in my home. And let me explain. 
So my wife and I, we have four kids now. We've got a baby, a one-year-old baby, we've got a four-year-old, and we've got two eight-year-old twins. And as of two weeks ago, all the troops are home from school. Super fun, I know. You giggle because you know. And what happens now in our house, I've literally got toys out of the attic, and it's, 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 it's a mess. Kids are all over the place. They're upstairs, they're downstairs. The backyard, they're down the street. You know, we're doing the love your neighbor thing, we're getting to know neighbors, but man, they're down the street now. And here's what has happened. It's really hard to get a hold of one another in the house. They don't have cell phones, they're like eight and four. But here, here's what I've learned. I have come to learn that any little human in my house that has legs and can talk is someone I can recruit as a messenger. <laughs> Figured it out, some of you had too. And so what I will do is instead of having to yell something, yell down the street, that's not a good look, I send one of these little messengers. I summon a messenger that's near and I said, hey, go tell brother it's time to come inside or it's dinner time or you gotta go get dressed for baseball or whatever it is. I send them off with a message, okay? Now, here, here's, here's though um, what I've come to learn. Occasionally, Along with the message that I send, there are these little addendums that are added onto my message. Uh, hey, hey, it's time to come inside. And if you do, we all get popsicles. <laughs> and uh, word gets back to me, and I learn. <laughs> this is exactly what's happening in Luke chapter 7. The word's gotten back to the centurion. Hey, Mr. Centurion, great news. We told Jesus all about your servant. We told him all about his sickness, how he's not doing well. Um, you know, he's on his way. And, and we told him all about how great you were. We told him all about how worthy you are. And he's on his way right now. Smiles on their faces. And the centurion you got to imagine, he's just shaking his head. He's like, time out. No, 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 no. That is not at all what I wanted. That is not what I wanted you to do. And he looks over to his friends that are near him, and he's like, you guys got to go back to Jesus right now, before he even gets here. You got to go back and tell him, that is not what I meant. I am not worthy. Go. That's the second thing we see here about this centurion. He has a faith that rejects keeping score. He's got to get word back to Jesus. I'm not worthy. In humility, he says, God, you don't owe me anything. I'm not even worthy for you to step in my home. Jesus, let's get this straight. If you're going to come and heal my servant, you are not going to do it because I deserve it, because I earned it, because I'm good enough. You're going to do it because not I'm worthy, but because you're worthy and you're righteous and you're good. That's how you're going to do it. It will not be because of what my worth is. It's the type of humility that reminds us of John the Baptist when he, when he says, I'm not even worthy to untie the sandals of his feet. 
It's a type of humility that reminds us of Luke chapter 18, when you've got that tax collector and you've got this self-righteous, religiously-minded Pharisee who stood by himself, and this is what he prayed. He said, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like that tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful on me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other one. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Don't we see that attitude right here in the centurion? He refuses to keep score. He refuses to believe that God owes him something. And the beautiful thing about this passage, this story, you might think about it and say, hey, I remember this story. The thing that comes to mind is faith. But this is not just a story about faith. This is a story of grace. This shows how our faith is woven and tied to the grace of Jesus, that the true faith is embracing with all our hearts that we don't deserve and that we have earned favor only because of what Jesus has done, not what we have. Just a minute ago, we took communion. Every month here as a church, we are reminded of that. Jesus told his, his people, do this, keep doing this. Why? Because we need to remember it's not that we are worthy. It's because of the perfect life. It's because of the obedient death. It's because of the power of the resurrection. That is how we have grace. Real quick, I want to point out something here in the beginning of verse 6. It says, and Jesus went with them. Did you catch that? He's on his way. He's literally in the process of now going to the centurion's house. In the timeline, after, they asked, after the Jewish elders ask him, he's on his way. So what's the big deal? He's getting what he wanted. The centurion is getting what he asked for. Why is that a big deal? Because to the centurion, what's most important, catch this, it's not that he gets what he wanted. It's authenticity. It's being real. It's being honest. It's not to be a hypocrite before Jesus. If getting the result that he wants means that he has to pretend to be something he's not, he says, no way. I don't want any part of that. Don't even come if that's why you're coming because I'm worthy. Verse seven, therefore I did not presume to come to you. Jesus, I wasn't assuming you do this because I deserve it. I didn't pull the centurion card and say, you gotta come. I demand that you come. I didn't order or summon you here. I brought a request to you. And by the way, I did it. I, I, I sent Jewish elders, so I was just trying to be considerate of you. Clarifying here. And, and look what he lays on the line. 
this Roman centurion, look what he lays on the line when he sends this other group with this new message. He might look like a fool. Here's this guy who commands men, supposed to be in charge, sending like the opposite message, like, come on, make up your mind, man. Not a good look for a Roman centurion. But for him, what's most important is not how he's seen. He's saying, I'm not gonna live an untruth. I'm not gonna live a lie. Yeah, all that stuff they said about me is true, but eh, time out. When they got to the part about me being worthy of it, not a chance. I am 100% not worthy. And you know what? I'm not gonna pretend to be. I'm not gonna pretend to be his whole way here and just let things slide and let him heal and we're gonna be good. I'm not gonna live a lie. And that's the third aspect we see of the centurion's marvelous faith is that it's a faith that's willing to lose my image to embrace my identity in Jesus Christ. Man, what's most important to this guy is not how he's seen. It's not the praise of people. It's not how he's viewed by others in the midst of people, talking about how great he is. What's most important is not even that he gets what he wants, that this servant he cares about deeply is healed. That's not even the thing. The thing for him is that he's not made out to be something that he's not. That he knows who he truly is before God. He's willing to lose the answered prayer, willing to lose his image, just as long as Jesus knows, I'm not standing here prideful, claiming to be worthy. Jesus in Matthew chapter 10, he said this, if you cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you will find it. Paul writes this to, to, to the Galatians. He said, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Centurion's willing to, to lose his image, to embrace it. Back to verse seven. But say the word and let my servant be healed. What he's saying there is, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come. But even if you don't come, I would sure love if you heal my servant. I know you can. If you would choose, would you heal him? Here we read in verse eight. This is a beautiful illustration from the world of the, the century, and this is what he knows. For I too, I'm a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. This is a man who, who understands authority. He understands what it's like to be a man under authority, understands what it's like to have authority. He knows what authority does in getting stuff done. And this is point number four. Faith of centurion is it's a faith that rightly views Jesus. It has a full confidence, fully confident in his ability and his authority. In the centurion's mind, you can read it right there. There's no doubt. There's no question in what he can do. And this guy, he's seen authority. 
Just imagine the things that this Roman centurion has seen on the battlefield in Rome. He's seen an, an earthly authority and power in the Roman Empire that the world had never seen. He gets authority. And out of that, this man, a man of authority, says to Jesus, a homeless, Jewish, poor man, rabbi. He says to him, Jesus, I know something. Your words have an authority that mine do not. He gets it. And he doesn't order Jesus to do anything. He leaves it up to him. He says, it's your call. And you know what he says? You know what he mentions in this? By saying, don't come here, but just say the word. He said, you don't even have to be here. I get your authority. You don't have to be here. Jesus, just say the word. And I know it's done. And now we're back to where we began in verse nine. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. We're back to that it's amazing moment. This is the type of faith that he's looking for. This is what he wants to find in us. And it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. It doesn't matter if you're religious or not. It doesn't matter if you're a somebody or a nobody. This type of faith is for everyone. Jesus is for everyone. And the grace that Jesus brings is for anyone. Last thing from this passage, this is number five. The faith of the centurion is a faith where my view of God isn't dependent upon the outcome of my request. Look at how the story ends. Verse 10 says this, and when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. And sometimes God does that. He does just that. We pray, we bring it to him, and he answers exactly how we ask. Praise God. But sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes he chooses differently. And look how the centurion leaves the message to Jesus. He says, Jesus, I know you have authority. Say the word and it's done. He's confident in Jesus' authority. And you know what that means? Answer it or not, Jesus, you still have the authority. Doesn't matter if you answer it this way or that way or any other way you choose. You don't change. Your authority doesn't change. Your power doesn't change. Who you are doesn't change based whether or not you answer my prayer request the way that I ask you. Your words still have the exact same power and authority. There's a great song by Mercy Me. It's called Even If. I want to read you just a couple lyrics here. It said, but God, when you choose to leave mountains unmovable, oh, give me the strength to be able to sing It Is Well With My Soul. I know you're able and I know you can. Save through the fire with your mighty hand, but even if you don't, my hope is you alone. I know the sorrow and I know the hurt would all go away if you just say the word. But even if you don't, my hope is you alone. That's the type of faith that's unshakable. 
It's the type of faith that's on the rock. That's the type of faith that's not dependent on what, if God answers our prayer or not. And I want to close with this, this image, and it's how we view our circumstances and how we view God. Because here's what happens if we get it wrong, and we get the reverse of point five. If my view of God is dependent on the outcome of my request, here's what happens. We begin understanding God in light of our circumstances. You can go back one slide and flip it. We begin seeing all the stuff in our life. We get on social media, we hop on there, we see all the stuff. We're confronted with all the circumstances of our life. And you know what happens? It's the way we view everything, including how we view God. And you know what the danger of that is? Now, what we're going through, this is hard. And we say, God, what I'm going through right now, how can you be good if I'm going through this? How can you be faithful if I'm going through this? We look at this and we say, God, you must not be faithful because of what I'm experiencing here. But what the centurion does and where he leaves it is, God, you got the authority no matter what I go through. His view of God isn't based off of his circumstances. And watch what happens when we flip these. If we understand our circumstances in view of God, here's what happens. Whatever you're walking through, whatever you're going through, whatever the thing is right now that's going on in your life, God is good. He is faithful. He is for you. And doesn't that change the way you view your circumstances? Instead of allowing it to change the way you view God, it changes the way you see everything you're walking through. And that's how we can have joy amidst sorrow. That's how we can have a view that says God is for me no matter what. And maybe for you, you just need to relook at the stuff in your life and say, God, you're good. That's where I've got my eyes first. I'm looking at you. I'm not looking at the stuff. And Lord, I'm gonna know that you are for me. You are a good father because I'm looking at everything else in light of who you are. That's what's happening here. So let me pray as we close. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for this passage, Lord, that just helps us look at faith, the type of faith you want us to have. Lord, I, I pray, Lord, that you would do a work in us to, to form that type of faith, Lord. It says in Hebrews chapter 12, Lord, that you are the author and perfecter of our faith, God. And right now, Lord, I gotta believe that, Lord, you wanna do some writing in our, our lives, in our marriages, in our homes, in our families, with our kids, Lord. You wanna write a story of faith, God. And I pray, Lord, that you would do a good work, that you would form in us the faith that you would marvel at and you would be excited to find. And that, Lord, we'd be a people, a faithful people, God, who stand before you, undeserved, thankful, hopeful, confident, God, in who you are. So we love you. Pray all these things in your name and all God's family said.